This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a great show today. In fact, a, a number of the stories are, are very disturbing. We're going to be talking about a recent declassified Israeli document that revealed fresh and painful details of a planned basically community murder and massacre of Palestinian civilians in Kafr Qasim, which was a, a real tragic, legendary massacre that the Israeli commandos committed against Palestinian uh, civilians. And I'm quoting from the declassified version from a commander who said, quote, it was desirable for there to be a number of fatalities. So although we've been talking about for, for many, many years now, Jamal, about the atrocities committed by the occupying apartheid Israeli military, their own documents are starting to come to light. In addition, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the United States, which in terms of foreign policy on Monday revealed a new kind of tranche of sanctions targeting illicit support for the Iranian oil industry. In other words, Iran, much like Russia, has managed to get oil out and into the market and it looks like the United States is going to crack down on that, which will dim the hopes of the Iran nuclear deal. But before we get to all that, Jamal, uh, we're going to get to a really great interview that you did with Adam Shapiro. He's the director of Israel-Palestine Advocacy at Dawn. Dawn has filed a complaint with the Department of Justice, uh, basically against four lobbyists for the NSO group. We had this uh, discussion and, and talked about this story last week who are misrepresenting Israel to it. In other words, they've never registered as lobbyists for a foreign entity. And your interview with Adam was uh, very revealing. Well, this is, uh, I mean, we're, we're going to get the information from someone who conducted the investigation and exactly. filed basically the, the complaint. So let's uh, go to Adam Shapiro. Pegasus, the predator spyware produced by Israel's NSO group, has been exposed infiltrating the private communications devices of lawmakers, politicians, journalists, and activists throughout the world. Israel's government approves the licenses of NSO group to export this technology, which has been widely used by authoritarian governments to repress opposition. NSO Group was blacklisted in November 2021 by the United States government for enabling foreign governments to conduct transnational oppression. Don, Democracy for the Arab World Now, a nonprofit organization that promotes democracy, the rule of law, and human rights for all the peoples of the Middle East and North Africa, has filed a complaint with the Department of Justice against four lobbyists for NSO Group who are misrepresenting Israel's ties to it. Joining us today to discuss this and more, Adam Shapiro, the director of Israel-Palestine Advocacy at Dawn. Uh, welcome to Arab Talk, uh, Adam. Thank you so much for having me and for covering this topic. So let me start by, uh, let me start with the basics, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, please explain why Pegasus is such a unique, threatening technology and who's behind this NSO group. So the Pegasus technology, which has now received a lot of attention over the last few years um, due to its use by authoritarian regimes and, and others to repress journalists, human rights defenders, lawyers, dissidents, 
basically it can be, there's been a few versions of it. And the most recent version has allowed governments to install the spyware on your device, your phone, and enable that to be activated without you as the user having to touch or press anything on your device. What it will do is allow that the person who's hacking have access to all the files, to the camera, the record, the audio recorder. Basically, um, it doesn't give the person control over your phone. It gives them access to everything over your phone. And so this is, of course, extremely dangerous. It's a, it's a clear privacy violation. Um, but it obviously has put people in danger, um, including the founder of Dawn, um, Jamal Khashoggi, who, although we don't know if Pegasus was on his phone, because, of course, we don't even know where his body is, never mind his phone, um, we do know that a number of people around him, his close associates and, and fiancé, did have their devices infiltrated. So this is the kind of uh, danger that the, the spyware presents. NSO Group was founded by... Um, and uh, it's an Israeli company. It was founded by Israelis who had been serving uh, in the what's called Unit 8200, which is the uh, military intelligence unit of the Israeli military and has become notorious at this point, not only for its own activities that it carries out as the Israeli army military intelligence unit, but also mo a lot of the, um, as we should say, alumni of this unit have gone on to, to create these cyber companies which are creating effectively military level technology to be sold on the open market. So uh, give us a little bit of uh, probably a chronology of the cyber, cyber surveillance scandal uh, mm -hmm. which basically exposed uh, the Pegasus project. So it goes back a few years, actually. Um, one of the first countries in which it got exposed that Pegasus was being used against a human rights activist was the case of Ahmed Mansour in the United Arab Emirates, who was a blogger, an academic, and who, it was later discovered, had found that you know, his phone had been infiltrated by the UAE government using Pegasus spyware, and he is currently in prison and has been sentenced to a long-term prison um, sentence, effectively for um, freedom of expression issues. Um, that was one of the first cases of well-documented use of Pegasus spyware. Later on, it came to light that the government of Mexico had acquired and been using Pegasus spyware. Um, and it is in, was used to target, although the, the government said it was going to be used to target narco-traffickers and, and sort of the bad actors, it ultimately was used against journalists who at the time were critical of the current Mexican government at that time, uh, Enrique Peña Nieto. And we now know that the spyware was likely also used to target the students who were involved with uh, the Ayotzinapa case, which was the case of 47 Mexican students being uh, disappeared and ultimately murdered, uh, which, to which there's a connection to the, the former head of Mexican intelligence, who, by the way, is now actually hiding in Israel. Um, so there's a few nefarious cases early on. And then, of course, what's come to light, and of course, the Khashoggi case, and then subsequently what came to light uh, in July 2021 was Amnesty International and uh, The Guardian and New York Times and a number of other media outlets around the world exposing and forbidden stories, um, exposing what's called the Pegasus Project, which showed that there was a, 
a database effectively of about 50,000 phone numbers that had been submitted to NSO for spying, including people like the president of France, uh, President Macron, um, former U.S. Uh, well, U.S. Uh, diplomat Rob Malley, who had been working on the Iran uh, nuclear negotiation deal. Lots of journalists, lots of human rights activists, lots of lawyers, lots of political dissidents uh, around the world. Not everybody was necessarily targeted, but we don't know that they weren't targeted. So now uh, the U.S. Department of Commerce uh, has ordered American companies to not sell this technology, uh, citing reports that the group's uh, Pegasus spyware is used against journalists, against, as we said, government officials, activists, and more. Mm. In a recent press release, uh, the regulator says that the company is being added to the entity list because its tool threatens, and I'm quoting here, the rules-based international order when it's sold to repressive uh, foreign uh, governments. Uh, maybe you should expand a little bit about this. What is this entity mm. list? So this is a technical thing. What's, what's really important here is actually the public statement, even more than the listing. The listing is important because it, this entity list basically means that U.S. companies with, need a, a special license in order to sell equipment or software or anything like that to NSO Group. The reality is that NSO Group isn't really buying a lot of stuff from the United, from United States companies. It has its own computers. It develops its own software. It's not, you know, it might be using a cloud server from Amazon, but probably not given the sensitive nature of the material that it's collecting. So it's somewhat symbolic, but the statement, as you quoted, about the fact that it's, you know, the, the spyware violates the rules-based order that it is, it actually went on to say that it's acting in the interest contrary to United States national security and foreign policy. These are very important statements that characterize NSO Group as a nefarious actor in and of itself, separate from the way the governments are using the spyware also. It actually puts the responsibility on the company. And so that was a very important move by the Biden administration and, and the Department of Concert, Commerce, even if the practical effects are somewhat minimal. So what has uh, Don's investigation revealed? So our investigation, we were looking at who is lobbying, because we have a project that looks at who who is doing the lobbying on behalf of authoritarian and repressive governments and companies and things like that. And as part of our Israel-Palestine work, but also as connects to the work we do on Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and, and other countries, um, we wanted to see who is carrying what, who is doing the work for Pegasus, especially after the Commerce Department ruling. And we have found that there are four DC-based firms, uh, two, high, two very prominent law firms, and then two well-known, well-established, uh, more formal lobbying firms that have signed contracts with NSO Group to do the lobbying. And what's interesting about them is that when they submitted their paperwork, they said that this is just a private company. So that, wait, wait, wait a minute, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you here. So how is, uh, how is it that an organization can be on the entity list Mm. And lobbyists can continue <laughs> promoting it as though everything is business as uh, as usual. That's a good question. I mean, and that has more to do with the kind of lack of regulatory arrangement around lobbying and, and all of that. But you could also think of it as like even the worst criminal gets to have a defense lawyer. Right. So if you think of it a little bit in those terms, then it could sort of make sense. Um, doing lobbying to Congress is not the same as being a defense lawyer in court. But that's kind of the approach that 
that the way lobbying works uh, in the United States, at least. So we, we it is what it is. <laughs> it needs great, the, the, the foreign, uh, the lobbying system needs greater reform measures. But in this case, one thing that the Lobbying uh, Registration Act does require is that private companies, foreign companies disclose, or the lobbyists on their behalf disclose if there is foreign government control. Now we know an NSO group readily tells everybody that it submits to what's called export regulatory control by the Israeli government. And you can think of export regulatory control as any item that is exported from a country, any country, pharmaceuticals, eggs, meat, um, clothing, everything you, you would sell abroad is under export regulatory control to make sure that the products are safe, to make sure that the products you know, meet certain standards, et cetera. So Israel, NSO group saying that it meets regulatory control is normal, and it doesn't really mean that the government of Israel controls that company or that product from a political standpoint. What the lobbyist registration is trying to tease out and understand and be transparent about is if there is some form of political control by a foreign government, because that would mean that the lobbyists are not just lobbying on behalf of a company, but also on behalf of the political interests of the government. So, so we, who, who are, I mean, who are these lobbyists working for? So the four lobbyists are, the company, the law firms are uh, Paul Hastings, um, Pillsbury Winthrop are the two law firms. And then there's a company, a lobbyist, boutique lobbyist firm called Chartwell Strategies, which is headed by a guy uh, who used to head the Trump Victory Fund. And so he's very connected to Republicans. And then there's Blue Light Strategies Group, which is headed by a guy named Steve Rabinowitz, who has a long history on the Democrat side and also lobbying for Israel, uh, Israeli, pro-Israeli groups and, and Jewish American groups that are connected to Israel. So it's sort of a covering all their bases um, in terms of Republican Democrat, in terms of the Hill administration, and bringing in law firms who have long uh, track records of working on uh, human rights issues and pro bono, pro bono for social, uh, social good causes. What we found is that by looking at the open source reporting, and this is really important, it's not that we were able to dig anything up. We just put the pieces together of what's already out there. That through the reporting from the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, Forbidden Stories, lots of other media outlets around the world, including Israeli media outlets, we have shown that the Israeli government, the Israeli prime minister's office, especially under Netanyahu, interfered hmm. with the either getting contracts for NSO groups, so effectively going to countries and saying, we'll give you or we'll, we'll sell you, uh, the private company will sell you Pegasus spyware if you do X, Y, or Z. Or if you, uh, ch you know, in the case of Mexico, for instance, what seems to be clear is that Mexico received Pegasus spyware after a visit uh, by Pr Prime Minister Netanyahu to Mexico. And then Mexico changed its... 50-year history of voting pattern in the United Nations, voting in favor of resolution supporting Palestine to taking a neutral or, or an abstention or a opposite vote, voting against. There was really no other way to explain that other than the fact that there was a quid pro quo for acquiring Pegasus. Even the Peña Nieto government before it got Pegasus was still voting the way Mexico had always voted. So that is a clear you know, indication that there's a political control. The second major case is that of Saudi Arabia. The, after the Khashoggi findings came out and the CIA report came out, 
the Israeli Ministry of Defense Regulatory Agency actually ordered the termination of the contract mm -hmm. and to stop selling Pegasus spyware to the government of Saudi Arabia. Prime Minister Netanyahu's office, uh, Netanyahu himself came in and personally intervened to make sure that contract didn't stop. So even he overrode the regulatory element of the government, you know, government uh, oversight. And then finally, as we documented and as others documented, uh, Israel refused to sell Pegasus spyware to or to allow for the sale of Pegasus spyware to uh, Ukraine in the buildup to the, what ended up being the Russian invasion of that country. Uh, and Ukraine was asking for it for, to help it, you know, with its defensive purposes, basically, to try to understand what was happening with Russian uh, military as it was building up on the border. All of the, and, and the reason Israel gave for doing that was because it didn't want to harm relations with Russia. It wasn't about U Ukraine's human rights record. It wasn't about how Ukraine might use the spyware to target anybody. It was just simply about preserving the political relationship with Russia. So basically what we found was that these lobbyists, and again, all of this information is open source. It's all widely available. We believe that they intentionally misrepresented the company and that this was done to protect the Israeli government and ultimately to serve the, corp the, 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 the potential sale of this company, which we saw that there a couple of weeks ago, there was a potential sale to an American company. We think this all fits together. So we're asking the Department of Justice to find in our favor, to confirm our investigation. And if they do so, the consequences for the law for, for the lobbyist firms could be fines, could be some other form of sanction. But more importantly, it changes the way that this company is understood, not just by the media, but by governments including, we know that there's already two lawsuits, one by Palestinian uh, lawyer Salah Hamori in France, and another case in Spain that's being investigated right now about NSO group and the targeting of politicians in Spain. If the Israeli government indeed is found to have political control over this company, then the Israeli government can be brought in as a co-defendant on these cases and, and any future cases that might be opened uh, in terms of violation, the violations by Pegasus Byron. So that's where, although we're going after a kind of technicality, the mm -hmm. potential impact is much greater. So to be clear, these lobbyists are not registered as foreign agents, right? They are registered as foreign agents, but only for a private company. And what mm -hmm. we're saying is that they didn't disclose that they're also, this private company is controlled by a foreign government. And therefore, there are additional transparency requirements that they must report on and, and register. So, with, with, I mean, it seems like all roads lead uh, to, to Israel and, and you have en enough evidence uh, to implicate Israel in all of this. Uh, with that in mind, what measures has the United States taken in the wake of this? Well, we did receive a confirmation from the Department of Justice that they are looking into our complaint, which is, I think, really an important first step. Um, uh, we released our complaint uh, a few days before the House Intelligence Committee held a hearing early last week, looking at the private commercial sale of spyware, including NSO groups, uh, Pegasus. And we briefed a lot of the members of the uh, committee uh, and their staffs. And I know that they are also taking on board our information and understanding that this is not just a private commercial interest. This is actually a, a government interest. And any additional steps that the U.S. Congress might take need to be understood in that, in that context and need to be done with that in mind. We know that a number of uh, senators led by Senator Wyden and with Congress members have asked for Magnitsky sanctions against uh, MSO Group. 
And we are continuing our work to advocate for that and also to have them ask the Justice Department to, you know, certify our findings. I mean, I, I, I think it should be a major concern, I mean, for U.S. officials, and I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, the European Union has recently, we talk, spoke, you mentioned this fund, evidence that smartphones used by some of its staff were compromised by NSO's Pegasus. This mm-hmm. is according to the EU's top justice official. I mean, if, I mean, it just makes sense if this is happening there, can we also assume that it is also happening to U.S. officials and their phones are compromised in the United States? I think that's a very fair assumption. NSO Group has long held that the spyware could not be used against U.S. phone numbers or U.K. phone numbers. We know that's not true. That's been exposed uh, a number of times now. Um, so there's really no protections, regardless of what kind of phone you have or where, where you're based in the world. What I think is surprising and disappointing at this point is that NSO Group is not the first company and Pegasus is not the first spyware that came out that could infiltrate people's phones. As far back as 2011, when popular uprisings emerged in the Arab world, at around the same time, we saw governments in the region starting to use tools made by um, a hacking team, which was an uh, Italian-based company. There were uh, German companies and British companies that were involved with making spyware that was being used to target activists uh, throughout the Middle East and North Africa. Some of those companies have now gone out of business because governments in Europe took steps to start to regulate those industries, that industry a bit more. The United States is very far behind. Not Not that Europe doesn't have more to do. It does. But the United States is really very far behind when it comes to really grappling with the exploitation of this technology, the use of this technology, and uh, its own susceptibility to this technology. I know that there's a lot of desire to come up with like a perfect weapon to use against narco-traffickers and terrorists and child traffickers and all of that. But we have not seen anywhere any evidence that this technology ends up getting used for those purposes. Instead, what we see is that Journalists, human rights activists, lawyers, and political uh, dissidents are the ones who get who get targeted. I mean, aside from governments or uh, Department of Justice, etc., uh, this is a major concern to uh, carriers, Verizon's, AT and T, smartphone makers such as Apple, etc. Have they been taking any any measures to counter this? Yeah, so we haven't seen it from the carriers per se, but uh, Apple has taken a number of steps, including coming up with greater uh, software solutions, basically for your phones to make them more secure. Apple has also created a fund to support the work of groups like Citizen Lab out of the University of Toronto and Amnesty Tech, who are working on uncovering and coming up with solutions uh, for these problems. Uh, WhatsApp has brought a lawsuit because its servers were allegedly uh, violated by Pegasus spyware. And that's an important lawsuit that's now part of it being uh, determined in the U.S. Supreme Court, but then we'll go back for a ruling uh, in, in the U.S. courts. Um, and so we're starting to see some of the private, the, some of the companies take action. But, you know, it's a slippery slope, right? Um, WhatsApp is owned by Facebook, which is Meta. They're violating our privacy every day. So it's not that these companies are necessarily our allies entirely when it comes to privacy issues. But on this issue, in terms of spyware, 
they do seem to be our ally, you know, the ally of the consumer. I should also add that another area for engagement, and perhaps some of your listeners uh, or uh, viewers are, are in, living in Oregon, for instance, but the state of Oregon's state pension uh, fund is actually one of the largest uh, investors in a company called Novopina. Hmm. Novopina is one of the owners of NSO Group, one of the prime investment owners of NSO Group. And so there is a campaign underway um, involving like progressive members in Oregon as well as Palestinian activists there to try to get the, the Oregon State Fund to disinvest its uh, holdings of Novopina as, as a response to this ruling on NSO Group by the Department of Commerce. So that's an important um, piece that's out there and something that everybody should be looking at there, especially public funds. Uh, public investment funds for. Well, uh, if the government is not going to do something about it, hopefully they'll do something about it. But uh, I don't know if this is your area. I don't think I don't know if this is your area of expertise. But what can average people do to protect themselves, or independent journalists, <laughs> etc., to make sure that they are not being spied on? I mean, do you have any tips for them? Well, I think there's a number of things that could be done. Uh, one is obviously make sure you have, you know, devices that have the latest software upgrades um, and are, you know, have the most amount of security. Use very strong passwords, of course. You know, basic things like don't click on on attachments or links that you're not familiar with, uh, whether they come by text or email or, or however they come. Use open source um uh, technologies for communication. So Signal, which is an alternative to WhatsApp, is a great uh, tool that people can use on their computers, on their phones. It can't stop you from being hacked, but it can encrypt your information when it's being sent. And encrypted information is much more difficult to um, to uh, infiltrate than otherwise. So there are things that can be done, but you should just also be aware and remember, if you've got a phone, somebody potentially could be using it to listen. So, you know, we just need to be more sensible and aware of, of what we're using and how we're using it. Adam Shapiro, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's the voice and the face of Adam Shapiro. And, uh, you know, here we go again, Jamal. You know, we're in a situation where a lot of um, these lobbyists are doing the bidding for a foreign entity, lobbying for a foreign not just any foreign entity and regime, but an apartheid regime, and uh, not declaring themselves as, uh, you know, advocating or lobbying on behalf of a foreign entity and getting away with it. And it's good that they're finally, well, I shouldn't say going to be held accountable, but at least a process will get in, in, you know, uh, going to see if we can hold them accountable. Well, that's the big question, is how much Israel surrogates in Congress are going to hinder any investigations and basically restrict Israeli spyware from infiltrating this country. I mean, I think maybe they'll learn a lesson from their counterparts at the at the European Union, right. who last week, and we, we, we talked about it last week, they've already uh, outed them, saying that uh, now they... Uh, they found out that uh, staff members' phones were hacked right. Uh, right. By, the, by this spyware. So I can't imagine if the entire European, <laughs> European Union has, has been infiltrated that we don't have a similar action happening right here in the United States. Well, I think that's right, Jamal. And I'm willing to speculate that a number of 
U.S. officials, elected officials, government uh, leaders have been hacked by this Israeli software. I, I, I'm willing to bet anything on it. But here's what I'm also willing to bet. I doubt that the legislature, I doubt that the government, you know, at least the elected officials will have the backbone or the courage to hold these uh, these spies and the spyware accountable. Now, the real the real wild card is whether or not Merrick Garland's Department of Justice uh, will rise to the occasion. I don't know. I, I just don't believe that the politicians will take any action. We'll see if the DOJ does. Yeah, I'm not hopeful, but I'm, I'm very happy to see that there is an organization, a credible organization investigating this, shining the spotlight, fi- filing a complaint, and maybe they'll take some action and, 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 and not only put an end to this, but really protect Americans and prote- protect American politicians from, from this spyware and stop the cover-up for Israel. It's not like we don't have a history of uh, Israeli spies in this country. I mean, they assume that we have forgotten about uh, Jonathan Pollard, Jess. Uh, I haven't forgot about Jonathan Pollard, who caused extreme damage to this country's intelligence services who's living freely in apartheid regime right now without any accountability in terms of... He's a of hero US. there, by the way, I should say. They, they celebrate him as a hero. Right. And let's not, let's not forget that it was, Donald, uh, it was uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and Donald Trump who uh, managed to secure his release among the most notorious spies in U.S. history, uh, spying for the apartheid regime against the U.S. military. It was devastating. And now he's a... He's a free man. What yeah. I mean, so can we can we expect that uh, elected officials will do anything about this? I don't I know. I hope so. I hope so. We're moving on to the next story, Jess, and this is uh, very disturbing. It's starting from it's, last uh, Friday. I mean, it's not right. news to us, and it's not news to Palestinians who have been crying for help for decades and, and, and trying to educate the world about the ethnic cleansing of Palestine that began way before 1948 and, and continued and still continues on today. But this is a big one. So last Friday, archives uh, of the Israeli occupation forces released uh, um, you know, through a court document uh, related to the trial of the Israeli soldiers who perpetrated this massacre and brutally slaughtered uh, 49 Palestinians on October 29th of 1956. And they, of course, the massacre took place in the town of Kufar Qasim. Okay. So just to give some historical background, and then remember, this is uh, shortly after the Nakba and the establishment of the apartheid state of Israel 1948. So uh, this was the large big, really, ethnic cleansing that happened at the time, and, and, and it's a proof that the ethnic, st- ethnic cleansing has continued. After 1948, Palestinians who remained on the land, and uh, which became Israel at the time, and through all the way to 1967, weren't allowed to travel between right. their towns and villages without a special... Govern, uh, go, uh, military government order, 
and they had curfews and all kinds of things going on to restrict, you know, at, at that time, like Israel did not even consider them, they considered them stateless. So they weren't Israeli citizens, even though the state, this is the whole new established states. And they, these are the ones who managed not to be ethnically cleansed, although actually should correct that because many of them got ethnically cleansed from their right. villages and moved to another Palestinian community right. within within uh, um, the borders of the n- newly established state of, of Israel. 1956 also is, uh, this is on the first day of the Israeli, British, and French invasion of Sinai. That's right. And I think also it's referred to as the Triad War, uh, which came in to, to response because Egypt closed this, the uh, Suez Canal and 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 uh, there was this whole plan to be, a, be really take over the Suez Canal uh, between Israel and the French and and the Brits. In fact, this is the one time the United States stopped that from happening. <laughs> okay, that's, <laughs> that's like, right. That was probably the United States decided to take any serious action against uh, and against Israel. So, 1956. This is at the same day that this was happening. The massacre happened. And and now, thankfully, through human rights organizations uh, like uh, Beth Salem and others and, and many others, uh, they've been trying to navigate the system of the Israeli courts to release these documents. And now we know because at the time, they couldn't hide this document. They couldn't hide as ma- as many. I mean, I mean, they couldn't hide this massacre, like or deny it, like they've denied right. what happened in Deriasin and others. And and you didn't have pictures and photographs and and historians. You know, it was too fresh. So Israel actually admitted to it in nineteen. 19- nineteen fifty six and conducted its own investigation. Had the um, at the time, the Brigadier General uh, Ishar Shadmi, who was in charge, he was the commander uh, of the Israeli army and who was put in charge of Kufr Qasim. Uh, and I guess he, at the time, they were have this curfew going right. on. So he had a curfew right. ordered. But they changed the curfew timing, Jess, so they advanced the curfew. They, they, he ordered the curfew to start earlier in the day and ordered his troops to strictly implement it. And, you know, who lived, who lived in, in Kufar Qadim, Qasim? Uh, Palestinians, they're farmers, they work the land, they, you know. Well, he failed to uh, let everybody know that he changed. Didn't that, yeah, but worse than this, but also gave a strict order that anyone who remained after the curfew would be shot. Yeah, with fatalities, as the release documents show. This is deliberate intent shown to commit the slaughter and murder of innocent Palestinian civilians, Jamal. It's it's in black and white. We've been saying it, and the survivors have been talking about it, but now we have the proof from the apartheid regime itself in their attempt to kind of hide it all these decades, it was planned and it was ordered. Well, uh, yeah, and but and then, then you hear about this. This uh, but actually, this is coming from the trial itself, like when they decided. So this, uh, you know, going back to this uh, Shadmi fellow who gave the order. Of course, his troop, his troops mercilessly opened fire, 
killing 49 people, including elderly women and, and, and children. The massacre was condemned widely, you know, across the globe, even though, you know, things didn't travel, the news didn't travel as fast as yeah. now, now they travel. So Israel was forced, basically, to conduct an investigation. Well, wanted a, to sham, show, a sham investigation. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's actually, this is the interesting part. And so that's where the transcripts come into play. Yes, because it also, number one, they couldn't deny now, at least now, that this wasn't planned or this was an accident, just like they are trying to play this game now with the murder of journalist Shireen Abu Akli, you know, that she happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe it's an accident. Maybe somebody else shot her. You know, they played the, this game. They couldn't do that. But they didn't say that this was a specific order. And, and, and as you mentioned earlier, this is, uh, you know, you have a transcript saying, well, it is desirable that there be a number of casualties. I mean, this is from, this is, this from is the now commander. from the yeah. commander telling his soldiers. What does that mean? It, it, means is ordered, it means that he ordered that these civilians be murdered. Full stop, Jamal. And or, and he said, and here is, I'm quoting here, and this commander who was Shmuel uh, Malinki, uh, the one who said it is desirable that there be a number of casualties, he told when, uh, during the court, he told the court that he answered the soldiers who asked him how they should deal with the Palestinians who did not know about the change in the timing of the curfew. Uh, that they should kill them, and and he said, and he's the Arabic word. He said, "Allah irhamu," you know, which means in Arabic, "May God have mercy, mercy on them." In other words, like kill them, kill them, yeah, yeah, kill them. So there was a systematic plan to uh, basically kill them, but not only this. And then through reading the, uh, through this, um, the different testimonials and and the transcripts, they had a plan. For those who survived, this is continuing on the plan Dalit of uh, ethnically cleansing the towns right. and villages. Right. I mean, when when you when you see your neighbors and when you see your family members getting slaughtered, so the survivors are going to leave. So he made the plan to kind of leave the the, the boat because you know this uh, Kafar Qasim is close to the Jordanian border uh, down. You know, so he made a plan to kind of provide a corridor where he ordered his soldiers not to be there so people would leave and go across the river. In other words, get rid of them right. outside the country. So right. murder as many people as you could, and those who survive, get rid of them. That's the, that's, the, that's the Israeli playbook, Jamal. We know that playbook. They did it in Deir Yassin. They've done it in other places. They've done it in Kufr Qasim. There's evidence for it. This is exactly the apartheid regime's playbook for ethnic cleansing, Jamal. But my question is, now that we have this data and this information and the documentation of the intention to commit mass murder of civilians, um, will there, the accountability, you know, that's, that's a complex question. You know, that's uh, two, three generations ago that this occurred. But it's still fresh in the minds of the families of the victims, even from three generations ago. So what what recourse do you think, or was that talked about at all, 
in recourse in terms of the families of the survivors of this uh, massacre, what recourse will they have? What recourse, Jess? We have an American citizen today who got slaughtered, an American citizen who... By a U.S. bullet. uh, Whose family basically met with the Secretary of State asking to see some justice. And of course, so far, they, they are unable to meet with President Biden. Right. And nothing has happened. So you have an American citizen massacred, murdered on camera, where millions of people saw that, sadly, and nothing. So imagine these people from 1956, nothing. I, I you know... There is nothing except we learn more and more about this sad truth until one day, whether through the International Criminal Court or something, and, and change the, the, uh, the sentiment across the globe to start treating Palestinians as human beings instead of burying their heads in the sand and ignoring their plight. And just like but quickly, Jamal, yes, the commander, yeah. you know what was the commander's punishment? All of the... All these people who got arrested, they were like let go in a few days. And the commander's punishment, because you're asking about this, his monetary punishment was equivalent to about one cent. Well, I guess that's the value that the apartheid regime put on innocent, uh, slaughtered Palestinian lives. But I just want to remind the pro Israel supporters who are listening to our show, there's no statute of limitations. I'm, on I'm sorry, I should correct that. The, the punishment regarding Shadmi, the highest command uh, who gave yeah. these orders, the judge ordered him to pay a fine of 10 cents. 10, 10 cents. cents for murdering an entire, slaughtering an entire, an entire village. And all the officers who spent basically a few days time in jail for killing and murdering people they all had a presidential pardon in israel well yeah well that that that's how apartheid regimes and oppressive regimes work jamal we know that but my my i want this to be heard very clearly by the supporters of the apartheid regime which is there's no statute of limitations in terms of accountability at the icc when it comes to war crimes like this so you know the evidence keeps mounting I mean, we, we've been talking about the evidence for these war crimes before the Nakba, during the Nakba, after the Nakba, and lead, and on a continuous line until today, Jamal. And we will continue to fight for accountability for all the victims uh, on this show. I know we're not going to let it rest. No, we won't. And, uh, well, at least we know what happened on the inside because everything is well, documented just but like... But how is this any different, Jamal? How is this any different from Der Yassin? How is this any different from anything else? All the other ethnic cleansing that occurred, you know, from before 1948, up until this day, up until this day, to the very day that we're doing the show. How is this any different? Of course it's, not, it's because Because every, every year we find out something new. Every year some new documentation gets uncovered. Yeah. Every year. And, uh, you know, if an American citizen who's slaughtered by the apartheid regime is not going to get accountability, as you said, you know, there may be people out there who feel, uh, well, maybe there won't be accountability. But 
you know, history has an interesting way of coming back to haunt perpetrators of massacres and perpetrators of atrocity. And we will not let this story rest. I, I guarantee that. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. We're moving uh, on to the next topic, uh, jazz. And uh, something something jumped at me. I don't know if many people noticed it uh, today. Yeah, yeah. Or paid attention. But first, I start with something like first, this is the United uh, Nations chief uh, warns humanity. And, and I'm quoting this Mr. Gutierrez uh, says that the world facing a threat not seen since the height of uh, the Cold War. And we have been extraordinarily lucky so far, but luck is not a strategy. And then he goes on to say, <laughs> one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. How many people do you think paid attention to this? Well, uh, less than a handful, to be honest, because people have their minds on on other things, unfortunately, and they can't process this. But this was a very dramatic statement made. And if you dig beneath the story a little bit, it's very disturbing. It's very disturbing. And pay, people should pay close attention to this. And, and, and we're going to talk about it here and connect it because, of course, he's referring to what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. And then we keep pushing, pushing, pushing to see this war continue and go on and, 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 and try to find different confrontations with different countries, which I find it very, really very provoking that the sad and sad and sad at the same time that the Biden administration, it, it's almost like is embracing every opportunity to destabilize this world, you know, from Nancy yeah. Pelosi's trip initially saying, trying to kind of poke something at the Chinese by going to visit, saying that she wanted to visit Taiwan. Which she will, as it turns out. To our, to, our, <laughs> to our meddling in this Russia-Ukraine war. And now uh, we're just sitting, planning to scrap everything that has all the prog- progress that was made with, the, uh, with, with, with Iran uh and trying to kind of hurt iran in a different way i mean and and i mean here we are complaining about oil prices and and mr biden president biden right. goes and 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 embraces or uh fist bumps let's say the murderous mbs so we can get more oil at lower prices and then here we are trying to find a way to stop Iranians from selling their oil. That's exactly right, Jamal. And the hypocrisy and the double standard is kind of out there. I want to let our listeners know that, of course, the United States is playing this duplicitous game because, by the way, Russia is doing the same thing, and they're doing nothing to stop the sale of Russian oil on the black market. It's flooding the the black market. India and China are buying Russian oil right now. The United States has gone to Venezuela, who is on our terrorist watch list, trying to get uh, the Venezuelans to release and produce more oil that we can import uh, Venezuelan oil, even though they're they're on the watch list. And yet, and yet, Jamal, we're going to punish the Iranians for exporting their oil. And, of course, the connection to the apartheid regime is, should be pretty clear. 
the Iran nuclear deal, which is celebrated by everybody in the world except the apartheid regime and perhaps MBS, you know, the two thuggish countries in the world right now. Um, this is, you know, at the behest, I believe, and pressure from, I believe, MBS and from the apartheid regime to try to undo all the progress of the Iran nuclear deal and to try to squeeze the Iranians. It's it's yet another example of a failed foreign policy, Jamal. And who are we doing the bidding for? Are we, is it, let me ask you a question. Is this in the U.S. interest? It's not. I mean, I mean, this is what I've been saying. We've been complaining about oil prices. I mean, they came down since we've been talking about the show a little bit, but they- 35 cents. Where you and I live, they're still- Hovering around six dollars, they're right. like five ninety nine a gallon That's or right. something like this. Maybe in other states it's a little bit cheaper. I mean, and 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 uh, going back to twenty twenty, you know, we're talking about prices under four dollars. So that's a lot of money for families who Absolutely. need to commute. But it's, and- it's but it's 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 the problem, Jamal, again, of doing a bidding for these rogue medieval apartheid states. So yeah. you have. The medieval kingdom and the apartheid state, both these so-called countries have been advocating to put more pressure on Iran, even though it's not in the U.S. interest. Under the Obama Obama administration, Obama said, to heck with you guys. It's in our interest as a country to do the Iran nuclear deal. Of course it is. It's not not in the U.S. interest. It's not in in the Europeans' uh, interest. It's not in anyone's interest when... At, at this time, at, at this day, when we're putting sanctions on on Russia and and everything has been disrupted, and uh, Iran has been filling a little bit of that gap. So I'm just like a little bit going to go through this yeah, yeah. announcement that was made today. Just uh, basically, the United States announcing a new tranche of sanctions targeting between courts illicit support for the Iranian oil industry as prospects for reviving the Iran nuclear deal continue to dim. Uh, In his statement, Secretary um, Blinken said the United States has been sincere in pursuing a path of meaningful diplomacy to achieve a mutual return to full implementation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is the formal name of the 2015, of course, Iran uh, nuclear deal. And he goes on to say, until Iran is ready to return to full implementation of the JCPOA, we will continue to use our sanctions authorities to target exports of petroleum, petroleum products, and petrochemical products from Iran. I have a question for you, Jess. Listen, (laughs) we have Israel is not a party to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the NPT, and is the only country in the Middle East with nuclear uh, weapons. So when he talks about the rules of law and rules based on international order, because I didn't read his whole statement, it goes something he continues about the rules based international order. Who does it apply to? This in the, those rules. Well, I, I think that's exactly right, Jamal. And, you know, we've been talking about this for so many years now, and we keep asking the same question. In whose strategic interest is it to act this way to support these rogue medieval apartheid countries? 
I have always, and you have always said, it's not in our long-term strategic interest to support these thuggish regimes, to support these apartheid practices. It just isn't. This is such a great example of clamping down on the Iranian oil expert at a time when the economy is teetering globally. And we need, for whatever reason, despite climate change, despite all the other chaos that's going on right now, anything that the United States does to limit the amount of oil that gets produced and distributed globally is only going to hurt the United States. So it seems not just hypocritical, it seems self-destructive to do this policy. I mean, this takes me back to Gutierrez's statement when he talks yeah, yeah. about, yeah. you know, a war, you know, a war of annihilation, nuclear annihilation. I mean, when you put sanctions, because I was reading about the sanctions, and it's also sanctions not only on the companies, but also on shipping. Right. So is the United States going to interfere, let's say, in the, in, 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 in the Gulf area and the region to, to yes. intercept, intercept? oil tankers, and these oil tankers, what flags are they going to be flying? I'm just making these scenarios. Let's say the United States intercept an oil tanker that, ha- that uh, with Iranian uh, oil in it, but it was a Russian tanker. Well, Think of g- this scenario. I mean, this is, a ve- this is very possible because now the Russians are co- collaborating and cooperating with the Iranians. And if we decide to intercept right. a tanker that's flying a Russian flag, what's going to happen well, next? Well, I think, you know, and, and this gets to this comprehensive analysis we have right now, Jamal, that the United States has thrown the Ukrainian, Ukrainian country and the people of Ukraine under the bus. Tens of thousands of Ukrainians are being killed. The entire country is being destroyed. The United States is literally pouring fuel, literally and figuratively pouring fuel on the fire of the destabilization in the region between Russia and Ukraine and the entire region. And, you know, frankly, Jamal, the United States foreign policy and what they're doing to Ukraine right now is so tragic. I I come back to this thing that the strategic interests are not being carried out to benefit the United States. It's just not, or the world for that matter. Not to to benefit the Ukrainian people because they're the ones who are paying with their blood. The Ukrainians. Except, Except I have to say for Zelensky and his wife who managed to pose for Vogue magazine, front page Vogue, when their people are in dire need for clothing and food and shelter and and but they had the time to pause for vogue yeah and i'll tell you this situation is, is going to get it's very shameful it's only going to get worse i i'm i'm sorry to say this but this us foreign policy reminds me jamal a little bit of what happened with george uh george bush and the invasion the first invasion the second and the first invasion of iraq and the catastrophic consequences that occurred, the unattended, we, I put that in quotes because I'm not convinced that it's unintended quite yet, but what's happening right now... With the, one exception, just I have to say. Yeah. And the, Iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruct, uh, destruction, WMDs, as as we, as Bush alleged. Right. In his, now we are poking the Russian bear with nuclear weapons and we're now we're also, we're, also too, yeah. we're also messing around with China. Think about that. That's why I keep going back to that statement by Mr. Gutierrez 
about nuclear annihilation, and I'm I'm really concerned about this. Well, I think you should be concerned. I'm concerned. I'm hoping that our listeners and viewers will be equally concerned. We're going to continue to follow this story uh, because it's all interconnected, and that's one of the things we do on on Arab Talk, Jamal. We make the interconnections with all of these political strategies that are not in the best interests of this country and, you know, looking at the consequences. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.